Welcome, Watchmen. I am the Paladin Preacher with Peleus Men's Ministry. Let's jump into tonight's topic. Are you ready? Let's begin. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Psalm chapter 51, and we're going to read through the entire chapter together. And I believe this chapter speaks directly to the type of posture we as Christian men need to internalize and need to take as we are presenting our hopes and our dreams and our life to Jesus Christ. It helps us understand that in order to be successful in God's eyes, we must first be broken and be rebuilt in the way that God needs us to be so that the Holy Spirit can carry out its will through us. But if we're not able to be broken and we're not willing to let us let our hearts be broken and our souls be broken to be rebuilt in the way that we're needed is necessary, it will be impossible for the Holy Spirit to use us. So I think this chapter is paramount to us as we as watchmen are trying to internalize how we need to view our life in, a, in its current state. And it's a good way and a good reminder to keep ourselves in check when we, when we start to get prideful or when we start to have success that is worldly success and is not focused on the kingdom. So Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak, and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take the Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then, and only then, will I teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you, Father. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or else I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you then bulls will be offered on your altar. So tonight we're going to discuss a couple things. We're going to go over what it means to be a man in the, in the concept of the warrior and the anti-warrior. What does that mean? How is that applicable to us? How was that modeled by Jesus? 
And then later on, we're going to get into some details about the ministry to help you guys better understand what we're trying to accomplish, how we came up with our name, and, and what does that meaning have to us. When you think of a man, what comes to mind first? What comes to mind to me is cars, bars, and cash. The three most prominent things when you think of a successful man is how much wealth he has, what kind of car does he drive, and what's his favorite cocktail or drink. In my former years, that was my depiction of what success truly meant. How could I prove to others that I was successful coming from such a broken home and broken family when no one in my family had ever been successful in business or in a career? It was challenging for me to look out into the world as someone who thought he knew he was following Jesus. And yet still I was drawn to people that had this aura of success based on the superficial things that I could see that identified success from an earthly perspective. When we talk about being a man and being a watchman, we have to change our mindset of what we believe true success looks like for a man. And when we're talking about this warrior and anti-warrior concept, there's duality in the, in the aspect that you have to have both sides and be willing to have both sides within your life in order to be practicing the humility and the brokenness and the heart posture so that the Holy Spirit can actually be activating within your life. Being a man is power under control. We have the capacity for destruction, but the discipline to produce grace. It's very easy to get angry at someone, but it's far more difficult to show that person grace. Psalm chapter 2 verse 1 says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 through 32 says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God Christ sake hath forgiven you. James chapter 1 verses 19 through 21 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls." Now, these three verses in my mind correlate with this idea of the warrior and anti-warrior, because we can't be walking around acting like everybody else, 
because we're not like everybody else. We have to hold ourselves to a higher standard. We have to hold ourselves to the standard of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ was perfection, we should be seeking that type of perfection. Knowing that we could never reach it, that, in my mind, is not an excuse. Because just as I said before, when I was seeking after these men that I thought were successful, I thought they were perfect, I thought they had their lives all together, I was seeking after that. That was my entire focus. But once we change our mindset, and we realize that we do need to be kingdom-focused, and that the rest of the world is going around without being kingdom-focused, we have to separate ourselves from that, and we have to completely and 100% focus on Jesus Christ. He needs to take the place of that individual that you want to be most like. Not like the richest individual you know, not like the guy you see with the nicest car or with the most attractive wife, not somebody who has the most successful business that you've ever met. All of those things, if not focused towards the kingdom, ultimately can draw you away from the kingdom. And in my book, my focus wants to be solely focused on Jesus Christ. So therefore, I have now placed Jesus at the forefront of my depiction of what I think success should look like. So I have a couple questions for you guys to consider. And the first one is, what do you think the cause is for so much anger within men? I also want you to think about what it is that you learn about anger in the passages that we just read. Number three, what are the consequences of a man who is quick to anger? And number four, what steps can we take to prevent our anger and practice discipline so that we can show grace to one another? So let's go back to question number one. What is the cause of anger in men? So in my life specifically, I was an individual who, I had this dormant rage that, lo- that lie deep within me And I thought I was a very patient individual until it got to that point where it felt like the the switch inside of me was flipped on. I was good. I was good. I was good. And then boom, I wasn't good anymore. And this explosive anger would come out of nowhere. And I would go into a, a fury and a rage. And I could never understand why I had so much anger pent up inside of me. Why couldn't I have more patience or grace for other people? And later in life, I came to know the reason why that was. You know, I had a lot of traumatic events happen in my life, and I'd be more than happy to share that in a further episode. But one of the things I realized is that I was not able to have grace for others And I had so much anger inside of me because I was unable to have grace for myself in any aspect of my life. I considered myself a perfectionist. I was always the person in 
in school projects who was the one who finished it, who wrapped everything up, put a bow on it and make sure everything was finished. I was always the person that felt like I was stepping in because nobody else was good enough or nobody else was understanding it enough or was giving it enough attention that I could give it. So in me, the inability for myself to have grace for my mistakes, for the, for the things that I said that I later regretted, for the actions that I took against other people, I was unable to forgive myself. And because I was unable to forgive myself, I was unable to forgive others. Because if someone was doing something to me, I would expect them to keep themselves in check, just like I was trying to keep myself in check. But if I messed up, I wasn't going to share that with anybody else. But if somebody else messed up, I was the first one to point it out to them. And I think if we reflect on something like that, I think we can look back in our life and see that we may have a similar pattern, probably not exactly the same. But I guarantee you that we as men, we often strive for perfection. We often are the one that wants to step in because it's either taking too long or someone's not doing it right. And we feel like we need to show them the way that is right because we know we can do it right and we can get it done right now. Question number two, what did we learn about anger in the passages that we read? So Psalm chapter two, verse one, why do, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? We have to realize that Someone who is not seeking after the kingdom, their only focus is what's going on in their life because they're not driven by the external force of of seeking out what's best for the kingdom. They're not asking themselves, how would the Holy Spirit respond to me in the way that I just said something or the way that I just acted? There's no checks and balances with the Holy Spirit because they're completely focused on what they're doing. So if if the, if the question is here, why do the heathen rage? It's saying that people who don't follow Christ, they're the ones who are, who are angry, who are lashing out, who don't know how to show grace to somebody else because they haven't learned what it means to give grace. They haven't learned what it means to have grace for themselves. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 30 for 32, it's saying in 30, chapter, uh, verse 31 that let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So the warrior, especially in a earthly regard, someone who is not following Jesus Christ, I guarantee if you spent time with that individual, as a, as a warrior, they would be experiencing those levels of bitterness. They would have that wrath that comes out of nowhere and explodes at people. They have anger that is so deep-seated within them because of what had happened in their life. They're unable to see that they can and should show a level of forgiveness and reciprocity and brotherhood towards these individuals, because it's all for them and not for anybody else. They are the ones fighting for everything. No one else is. 
So we have to contrast that with the anti-warrior, someone who is being kind to one another. They're being tender-hearted and forgiving one another. They're stepping out of the pattern. When you blow up at someone or you experience rage towards somebody, when they feel that, there's something inside of them that the Holy Spirit is convicting them that they probably responded incorrectly, that there, should have, there could have been a better way that they could have handled the situation. And I think the problem is it's twofold. One, people don't often realize it because they're so focused on themselves that when they go into a rage, they're unable to disconnect from what is happening to see it from a different perspective. And number two, often people, when they do realize that they probably messed up or they screwed up the situation or they responded really poorly, most quote-unquote warrior classes are not able to then recognize that they made a mistake and then say that they made a mistake. They would rather put their head down and continue on and in their stubbornness and in their ignorance, pretend like the way they responded was fine and that no one could offer another suggestion as to how they could have responded better. They know they responded poorly, and yet they're choosing not to say, look, man, I really screwed this one up. Forg- I, I wish you'd forgive me. I should have handled this a better way. I totally fucked up. That's the problem that people aren't understanding is that once you realize you messed up, you got to admit that you messed up. Because if you don't, then you're stuck on the path of the warrior, and you're not becoming the anti-warrior. So in James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, it says, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So you have the warrior who is not wanting to hear the other side. They're continually talking over the other individual, And they're trying to beat them down verbally and intellectually so they don't have an opportunity to express what they're saying. They're also not slow to speak because they want to try and talk over you. They want to try and shut you down before you have an opportunity to even respond. And someone who is living the anti-warrior is someone who is very quick to jump to anger and jump to rage and is ready to lash out in defensiveness of their own pride and their own ego. So therefore, it says the anti-warrior must put away all that filthiness. The rampant wickedness that is happening all around them, that they see most people are responding in that way, the anti-warrior sees that and tries with everything he's got to try and push those types of characteristics out of his life. Because he knows that there is a time and place for anger, but oftentimes we take it out on everybody else because we've adopted a warrior earthly perspective. And we haven't understood that the anti-warrior perspective is removing all of that, receiving the meekness, the, which is the implanted word, taking a posture of humility and admitting that you are wrong when you really mess up. We have to understand that in order to move forward, you need both aspects of the warrior and the anti-warrior. 
because both of those sides are, are two halves of the whole. But if you're so heavily weighted on the warrior, it's very challenging for the Holy Spirit to work within your life because you're not even being willing to humble yourself to the mistakes that you're making, much less humble yourself to the, the awful sin that is already within your life to the Holy Spirit. So we kind of already covered this, but the consequences of a man quick to anger, and then the steps we can use to prevent our anger and practice discipline. So I think we already said it, the the consequences of a man who's quick to anger, there is anger, continued anger, resentment, you start to lose friends, you start to lose relationships, you start to struggle at your job because no one wants to be around you, no one wants to sit next to you because they don't know when and where you're going to snap or when that switch inside of you is going to get turned on. The consequences of a man who's quick to anger is that the Holy Spirit can't work within your life because you're so focused on yourself within your own anger, you're unable to humble yourself so that the Holy Spirit can do its work. The Holy Spirit will be ready and waiting for you to acknowledge that you've made the mistake of trying to do it on your own in anger. But until you acknowledge that to the Holy Spirit, until you renounce that anger in the name of Jesus Christ, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, through the spoken word, the Holy Spirit cannot be at work within you, because you still have to admit that you did it wrong. Now, what steps can we take? I think the first step is, I would recommend reading Psalm 51 every day, for a couple of weeks. Realize that David was in a position where he could have been angry at everything. He could have been angry at Bathsheba. He could have been angry at Saul. He could have been angry at all these people in his life that were hunting him down. He was a fugitive from the law. He was hiding in caves. He could have been blaming himself for these circumstances. Like, how could he have screwed things up this bad? Why is he such an idiot? Why did he make these stupid mistakes? He could have had a downward spiral of negative self-talk. And I myself get stuck in those types of downward spirals as well. Just recently, an incident happened, and the very first thing I was thinking to myself was, how could I have been so stupid? Why wasn't I thinking through this process? I'm such an idiot. I, I, I screwed this up. My wife is going to hate me for this. I'm not going to be able to be around my family because in my mind, my pride and my, my, my want to self-preserve was taking over my mindset and we as men, I, oft, I believe we often get stuck in this downward spiral when bad things tend to happen in our life. But as we read Psalm 51, we realize that David, he didn't take that posture. He was putting everything on Jesus Christ. He was putting everything on God. Wash me of all my iniquity. Cleanse me with hyssop. Let your name be praised. Lord, if you can rescue me from this thing, I will make sure to spread your name and to sing your praises. 
That was at the very heart center of David's posture when you read Psalm chapter 51. I think after you've read Psalm 51 a few times over and over again, I think you'll come to realize that the number one thing we have to do is be willing to be broken in the presence of the Holy Spirit, and we have to take a posture of humility. Because as we said before, it's so easy to just lash out at everybody, to be angry at everybody, but it's so much more difficult when we ask for forgiveness, when we say that we made a mistake, and we say that we need help. Because Satan does not want you to ask for help. He wants you to get stuck in the anger and the jealousy and the hatred and the explosiveness because he does not want you to to humble yourself. He feeds off of us when we are stuck in a downward spiral. Only when we ask for the Holy Spirit to be present can we be at peace And finally, put everything that we're worried about on the Holy Spirit. Because ultimately, nothing we can do can happen without His power and His presence. All right, so we're going to take a little segue here. And we're going to talk briefly about Peleus ministry, what it is that, that we are, how did we come up with the name, and what is it that we're trying to accomplish? So when you think of Peleus, or when you think of Paladin, it's probably not a term you hear very often. It wasn't a term that I had really heard very often. Um, but when I was in Israel back in 2017, there was a process by which throughout the journey— we are supposed to be praying to the Holy Spirit to allow us to receive a new given name within the Spirit. Now, I know that sounds a little bit hokey, but when you're there and you are, when you're so close to the history and you're, you're there with tangible evidence of what the Bible and Scripture is actually talking about, when you're walking on almost the exact same streets that Jesus and the disciples were walking on. There's something powerful about being in the presence of that. And for me, I was still going through a lot of the hurt that I had from my past and the struggle to forgive people and the issues that I was having with my relationship with my father and the the hurt, the tremendous hurt that I was dealing with when my grandparents passed away, because like I said, I I grew up in a broken family. My parents were divorced. They separated when I was seven, and my my brother was uh, four. And ever since then, I I didn't really have a go-to core family figure, except for my grandparents. They were the ones who stepped in. My grandpa was the one who taught me how to work in the yard and how to mow a lawn with a push mower and how to clean the blades and sharpen the blades. He taught me how to mix cement. He taught me all the things that my father was supposed to teach me, but he wasn't around to do so. And so my grandparents did that exact same thing. So needless to say, I had a tremendous amount of weight that I was still dealing with when I was in Israel. And in order to take that next step 
in really seeking after Jesus, I wanted to receive a new name because I, I wasn't comfortable in the, in the name that I was given because that name was correlated with so much brokenness and so much despair and so many evil things that I still struggle with from this, to this day. And so when I, when I received my new name, my name that I was given was Paladin, Preacher, Gifted, Courageous, and Brave. It's not a standard name, but that was the name that was given to me while I was on my Israel trip. And so when I originally was thinking about branding the, the ministry, the word Paladin was very powerful in my mind because of of the name that I was given. So I did a little research on what a paladin actually means, and the word paladin is actually derived from an original Latin word, which is palatinus, which means servant or government official. These men or women were often referred to in literary cycles as the Twelve Peers, and they were the foremost knights within Charlemagne's court. And we see this written in the literary works such as The Matter of France or the Chanson de Guest. I'm sorry, that was a horrible French pronunciation, but bear with me. And from a further historical perspective, it was a term used to recognize a high-level official of royal courts in Europe, as well as dating back to the ancients of Rome or having local authority that was elsewhere belonging to a sovereign body or sovereign Rome. So what I thought was interesting about this is the idea of a paladin is it's a servant. They were historically members who, I don't know for certain if they counseled the king, but I know they were in the presence of the king because if they were in Charlemagne's court, they were obviously high-ranking individuals, individuals who were highly trusted, trusted enough to be accompanying the king within his proximity so that you could be in the place of the palace. And so I believe we as Christ followers, we have a local authority here on earth, which is given to us by our Father in heaven. So in my mind, if God is the king, the king above all kings, if we are a paladin, we become a member of the king's court. We are, tr- are seeking after being in as close proximity to God the Father as we possibly can. And in my mind, being a, a paladin is a, being a member of God's court. So to me, like that was, that was incredible. I, c- I couldn't believe that I was given the name paladin preacher, and yet there was so much depth of meaning to the actual word paladin that I had never understood before. In medieval legends in Europe, the paladins were considered the the twelve knights and loyal followers of Charlemagne, who was king of the Franks and was the founder of the Holy Roman Empire. I'm not going to get deep into Charlemagne, but you can definitely look him up if if you've never heard of Charlemagne before. And the name paladin, from a word meaning a person attached to the court, implies that the knights may have resided within the royal palace. The paladin appears primarily in a series of legends surrounding Charlemagne, his adventures, and the history of the Frankish kingdom, 
and many were said to play important roles in the Knights Templar and the Crusades. So paladins that were supposedly within Charlemagne's court, they were a chosen twelve, similar to the twelve apostles. I'm not sure if Charlemagne... I knew he was... Uh, uh, they were Orthodox, Catholic back then, and so he probably adopted the twelve paladins, like the twelve uh, apostles, or twelve disciples, but... I don't have verification of that. But many of them were perhaps the most uh, famous individuals that were within Charlemagne's court. And the most famous paladin of all of the Twelve was a man called Roland, and he was actually the nephew of Charlemagne. So... Now we've kind of understood the, the name Paladin and the term Paladin, where does it come from, and how that, how that um, gave me the idea of starting the, the podcast and initially calling the Paladin Ministry, which is later now called Peleus Ministry. And it's, it's now called Peleus Ministry because... When I thought of the word paladin, something just didn't feel right. It didn't feel like that was the the name that God had called me to call the ministry. And so I had been praying pretty continuously to to have the name of what God wanted to call this appear to me, whether that was with somebody sharing something with me or seeing something. I, I knew that when I would see it or hear it, I would know that that was what I was going to call it. And I was actually driving to work one morning. I had just finished reading my Bible, and I was transitioning to read an audiobook. And all of a sudden, this word Peleus popped into my head, and I immediately wrote it down in my Evernote while I was driving, well, speak to text. And later I was like, that's a really strange word. I've never heard Peleus before. It seems like a made-up word. I don't make any of it. I go into my office. I'm I'm doing some research. I'm like, hey, I wonder if there's anything actually called Peleus and where it's from. So Peleus in Greek is actually spelled P-A-L-A-I-O-S. And the I-O makes a ya sound, so Peleus. And originally, the name of this group was going to be Paladin Defense Ministry. But after I felt like I had a spoken word from God about a word that I had never heard before, I thought, you know, this this might be the word. I felt that tug. And so, much to my surprise, there was, a, there was actually a hit on Peleus when I was trying to spell it out phonetically in Google Translate. And I did find the Greek word Peleus, spelled with the A-I-O-S, and it was through the NAS New Testament Greek lexicon on the BibleStudyTools.com that I was able to actually find it. So, Peleus, in Greek, is actually a word meaning old or ancient. It means no longer new, it's worn by use, and the worse for wear, or old. So this word, not only was it a word that I felt was God-breathed, but it was actually, it was actually a real word. And when I googled it, it it meant this idea of old or ancient or worn by use. And 
later on, I actually discovered that there's actually a Peleus Bay in, in Greece. Uh, so I thought that was really interesting. But I think what was most interesting was that I found that this word is actually in the Greek scripture 19 times. It's found four times throughout the Old Testament and 15 times in the New Testament. It's, it's found in the Greek text three times in Matthew, twice in, Luke, in Mark, three times in Luke, one time in Romans, two times in Corinthians, one time in 2 Corinthians, one time in Ephesians, one time in Colossians, once in John. So now, not only was this a, a God-breathed word, but it actually meant something. It was actually a word to name a bay in Greece, and it was actually in the Bible 19 times. That was like, holy crap, like that is happening. This is a real word. So after all this, more discoveries of meaning and depth of the word, this name seems suitable because the foundation of the ministry requires unpacking biblical persons, how their story and life story prepared them for God's ultimate purpose within their life. It became paramount to me that it had to be called Peleus Ministry. So, one of the things I also want to discuss is debunking the misinformation today that God simply shows up and works a miracle with no connection to the individual's past or experiences. I think the reality is that people's lives are formed and shaped leading up to the moment when God chose to use them and work through them. God has his plan and he forms you as clay through your life. All of your life experiences are masterfully catered to you, especially by God, to form you for the future of his kingdom. So I thought this name seemed very suitable because the foundation of this ministry requires unpacking biblical persons, how their story and life story prepared them for God's ultimate purpose. And part of, in addition to that, we are actually trying to debunk the misinformation today that God just simply shows up and works a miracle with no connection to the individual's past. And that seems very misled. I believe the reality is that people's lives were formed and shaped leading up to the moment when God chose to use them and worked through them. God has his plan, and he formed you as the clay through your life. All of your life experiences were masterfully catered to you by God to form you for the future of his kingdom. So now we have Paladin, we have Peleus, which is old or ancient. Paladin was a man who served in the palace, who was in the king's court. These are all things that we are seeking after, to be in God's court, to be seeking after his kingdom, to unpack scripture, to unpack history, and see how all this stuff ties into how we were prepared within our life for what God has in store for us. That is why we named it what we named it. And I hope that's clear, because to me it's, it is so profound and is, and is so God-breathed that if I were to deny this name and choose one of my own, I honestly don't think I could have gone through with starting this ministry. Another way that we 
kind of unpack biblical persons, I'll give you an example in talking about Job. So there's two different types of understanding, and that comes from Job chapter 12, where it says, verse 2, With the ancient is wisdom, and in the length of days understanding. With him is his wisdom and strength. He, the Lord, hath counsel and understanding. So when it's talking about the ancient, it's also talking about somebody who has wisdom, they have strength, they sit within the counsel of the Lord, and they have that understanding from the Holy Spirit. So as a paladin, in my mind, we are the bridges between the ancient world and the modern world. And we're actually helping people cross that chasm between knowing and truly understanding. Which is why I want to be able to dive into Scripture and unpack this stuff from a scriptural and historical perspective, because we are trying to draw these connections. And the only way to truly do that is to understand that we need to take the posture of the paladin, someone who wants to sit in the court of Jesus Christ, sitting before his throne, being within earshot of his counsel, so that we can gain that understanding, and then we can disseminate that type of understanding to others. In the scripture, there's actually two separate types of understanding. There's knowing, and then there's true understanding. So the first way is called oblepo in Greek, which is O-B-L-E-P-O. And it's written in the Greek Bible, and it's translated as, quote, a simple observance of facts. So you're simply observing what the facts are. The sunglasses are black, the, the table is tall, or the light is bright. But the other term is horao, which is H-O-R-A-H-O. And that written in the Greek Bible is in seeing believing and understanding what affects standing what the facts actually mean to see in full comprehension so you're not just seeing what is actually there at face value you're seeing it you're understanding it and you're seeing why it's there and you're seeing how it's working with the surrounding environment there's an under like a, a deep understanding of what's going on that'd be like going to a, a a mechanic shop, and you can see that obviously something is broken. You say, my engine is broken, what have you. But when the mechanic walks out, yes, he sees that the engine is broken, but he can then understand what part of the engine is broken, how is that affecting other components of the engine, how is that disrupting the ecosystem that's going on within your vehicle, and he can then start processing through what actually needs to be done in order to fix it. So forgive the poor example, but it was the one that came to me in the moment. So we have ablepo and we have orao. We have seeing the facts, and then we have understanding what the facts actually mean. So a good, another good example of this is when John sees the empty tomb for the first time. It is written as a simple observance of facts that the tomb was actually empty. So when John sees the empty tomb, he realizes the tomb is empty. He sees the facts. 
In John's account in the Greek text, he uses the word ablepo when he sees the tomb's emptiness. Also, when Peter goes into the tomb and sees the burial linens and no body, he also uses the word ablepo in his observance in John chapter 20, verses 2 through 10 in the Greek text. So we have both John and we have Peter going to the empty tomb, seeing that the tomb is empty, and realizing that these are the facts. This is what's happened. The claws are here. The body is gone. The tomb is empty. It's open. John and Peter's interaction with the empty tomb in their opportunity to examine the empty tomb, the burial cloths, the word used to describe John and Peter's understanding then goes from ablepo to horao. So they're now seeing what the facts are, and then later on in their writing, they're changing their perspective because now they're able to see in full comprehension which is the biblical precursor to having wisdom through the power of the Holy Spirit. So John and Peter, they they go to there, they see the facts, they use ablepo. Then afterward, they use horao because they see that it's empty, and then they understand why it's empty, because God told them that he would rise in three days and that he would would, um, ascend and would not be subject to death. So where this becomes important and why we're trying to develop this training program is that most people stop at the ablepo version of understanding the Bible because their relationship with the Holy Spirit isn't as strong as it should be. They can see what the facts are. They can read the Bible and say, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and they can pick random facts that they can remember. But if you're just remembering the facts— you're not actually understanding it. You have the ablepo type of understanding, the face value, but you don't have the horao type of understanding yet. So the church, I believe today, does a good job of giving people the facts. They cover a good foundation of scripture, it's relatable stories and metaphors, but where they often struggle is in the equipping of the congregation to actually develop a stronger relationship with the Holy Spirit and help congregants make the transition from ablepo understanding to horao understanding. So So then they can truly grasp what the Word of God truly means. So oftentimes, you see the church focused on getting you into their programs, and getting you into community. You, you get beaten down with this idea of church community and that you have to get plugged in. But in, in my perspective, they are, they're, pursuing the right, they're pursuing the right thing, but they're going about it in the wrong fashion. The goal should not be getting as much people into this church and getting as much people into their programs as possible, the goal should be actually helping people truly understand what they're talking about, not just telling them what they should be learning on a Sunday service. So we have to help people transition from knowing the facts to actually understanding the facts. And I think there's a big disconnection right now, and there's a disparity where not enough teachers 
are transitioning themselves from ablepo to hurao. And then you see that translating into the way they teach their, their services on Sunday, because they themselves haven't made that transition. So if you haven't made the transition, how can you then teach other people how to make the transition? That's my number one question. So with this program, we're trying to accomplish through the podcast and through the ministry and through the training, taking individuals from knowing just the facts, the ablepo, and to what the facts mean, arao, and then strengthening their relationship with the Holy Spirit within their lives. Now, I'm, I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm not a pastor of a megachurch. I'm not someone of importance. I'm just a simple guy who I feel has made the transition from ablepo to hurao through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, I feel like it is my responsibility to then try and teach as many people as possible how to then make that transition themselves. That's, that's simply the long and short of it. I want people to go from just hearing the facts to really knowing how everything's happening, how it's coming together, what the plan is, and how they can have that spiritual toughness with the Holy Spirit. So I think that uh, will close us out for today. Um, thank you guys so much for listening in. I hope as we went over our stuff today, it, it kind of makes sense how we're trying to take that posture that David took in the desert, a posture of humility, a posture of willingness to be broken in the name of Jesus so that we can be rebuilt like clay in the new form and in the new name that Jesus wants to give us. And I hope it made sense why I chose Paladin and the Paladin Preacher podcast because of the idea of wanting to be in the palace and the presence of Jesus. That is my ultimate goal, and that's our ultimate goal here at this ministry, that when we die and, and we rise again at the second coming, that I want God to say to me, you did such a great job, you have built up an incredible reward in heaven, I want you to be as close in proximity to me and be one that dwells within my palace. That is my ultimate goal, because to me, that is ultimate success, and that is total kingdom success. And then when we talked about Peleus, this idea that it actually does occur in history, that it means ancient, it means something that's old, it's, it's been used. The idea I, I read on an Instagram post is, a knight in shining, shining armor is a, a knight who's never had to use his armor in battle. And the idea is, if a knight is wearing armor that's, that looks brand new and it's all shiny and it doesn't have a dent or a scratch in it, chances of that thing actually being used in battle or that guy actually know what he's doing, it's pretty slim. Now contrast that with seeing a knight, and he's coming off the battlefield, and it's dirty, and it's cloudy, and it's not shiny, and it's got a little rust on it. It's got some dings in it. It's got some slash marks. I mean, you can look at somebody like that and be like, damn, that guy's seen some stuff. He's seen some shit, and he survived. I want to go talk to that guy. I mean, the same was said when I was working in construction back in the day. I mean, I I had got my first job doing home and, and uh, residential and commercial remodeling for my friend's family. And we were doing uh, some properties here in Orange County. 
And I remember I was, I was so excited because I had gone to Home Depot. I had bought my first pair or first set of bags, uh, work bags to put all your tools in. So you actually have something holding all your gear instead of keeping it in all your pockets. It's because I didn't know what I was doing back then. But I, sh- I remember showing up at the job site for the very first time. And all the guys looked at me and, and they said, man, you better rub some dirt on those bags. Otherwise, you're going to get it hard. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I just, I just bought these, you know, I want to keep them, I want to keep it looking good. I want them to last a long time. And they're like, man, you come walking on the job site with new gear like that. That looks like it's never been used. Nobody's ever going to take you seriously. So I was like, all right, that's fair advice. So, you know, I, I wanted to try and fit in. So I rubbed a bunch of dirt on my bags. I threw it in the ground. I stepped all over it, made them as dirty as possible. And, and that idea has kind of stuck with me for a long time that, if you buy new stuff, but it still looks brand new a year, two years, 10 years later, chances are you probably haven't used it that much. Same thing with buying a new pistol or a new rifle. You see somebody who's taking amazing Instagram photos and posting these incredible videos on, on social media, and you're like, man, that thing is that thing's amazing. It's got incredible Cerakote job, and it's got you know all these like sweet the accessories and all his whole loadout looks brand new. Chances are it probably hasn't been used that much. And it makes you question how much training does he have? Anyway, kind of going down a rabbit hole, but the idea kind of stuck out to me, but I hope all that made sense. And I'm going to go ahead and close us out in prayer. Go ahead and bow your heads with me. <clears throat> Father God, you are, so incredible. You've done so many amazing things in our life. You've been continually transforming us, and we truly feel the presence of your Holy Spirit with us. We're fighting each and every day, day in and day out, with our situations, with our family, with our health, with our family's health, with mental issues, with depression and anxiety, with sickness, we know that you have all of that. Help us to remember that we, are, we should not get caught up in that downward spiral that Satan ultimately wants us to get caught up into. Because he knows that if he can pull us down in that spiral, that he is going to win in the end. But only through your power and hanging on to your, your strength and using the Holy Spirit's might within us can we be pulled out. We know that the yoke and the burden that we bear is incredibly heavy and that your burden is light because through the power of the Holy Spirit, you give us renewed strength. You take things that are broken within our, in our life and within our heart and you mend everything and you make it stronger. Like a broken bone that heals stronger than it was before, You, in your ever-ending grace and mercy, break us down to the point of the core of who we truly are so that you can build us up in the way that you have seen us our entire life. We just hadn't realized it yet. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, Forgive us our debts, as we forgive those who have debts against us. Lead us not into temptation, 
deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Forever and ever, your name be praised. The Lord of heaven's armies, the King of glory, Yahweh. Amen. Thanks, guys. Watchmen, thanks again for tuning into the broadcast. If you didn't hate it, go hit that subscribe button. You can check out our website at Peleus.com. That's Peleus, P-A-L-A-E-U-S.com. We'll see you next time. And remember, come one, come all. Together stand tall. For the Lord rejoices in uprightness.